This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. Johns County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, we've been in Romans chapter 5, and so I want you to take your Bibles again and be turning to Romans chapter 5. As we noted last week here in Romans chapter 5, Paul expands on this comparison between Adam, the first man who ever lived, and Christ, who is the one who represents his people. Basically, what Paul begins to say in verse 12 is that what Adam's sin or disobedience did in bringing death to the entire human race, Christ's obedience did in bringing life to God's chosen race. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 refers to us as a chosen race. There are only two types of people. Either you are in Adam this morning or you are in Christ. Either you are in the original race of mankind which was marred by sin or you are part of the chosen race of the people of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul expands on that now in verses 15 through 21. That was his point in verses 12 through 14. There is death in Adam and therefore there can only be life in Christ, but now he's going to expand on that in verses 15 through 21 to emphasize our life in Christ. We have death in Adam, we have life in Christ. And if you want a summarized understanding of all that Paul says here in Romans chapter 5, you need to look no further than 1 Corinthians 15, 22, where Paul says, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now Paul is not merely comparing Adam and Christ. He has a goal in mind and his goal in this comparison is to show the superiority of Christ's work over Adam's. So as you saw at the end of verse 14 last week, Adam set a pattern As the end of verse 14 says, Adam was a type, notice your Bibles, of the one who was to come. He was a type, that is to say, he was a pattern. He was the prototype as representative of all of man. He was the federal head of the human race because God had made a covenant with him that in the day he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would surely die. The implication was that if he did not eat of that fruit, he would surely live And he would secure life for all of his posterity. But if he ate of the fruit, he would secure death. Adam was the type or the pattern or the prototype of the one who was to come. That is Christ. He is the coming one. He is the Messiah. So Adam is the type. Jesus is the antitype. Adam is a prophecy in a way of the one who was to come. A prophecy of a greater one. One who would fulfill in a greater way God's purposes for the world because his purpose did not end with mankind in sin. It would end with the greater fulfillment of the redemption of sinners all to the glory of God. And I should also say this, although this comparison is real, you need to understand that it is superficial. Because one might ask, how can the Lord of glory and righteousness be compared to the man of sin and shame? 
How could this be? Well, only in the sense that it is a superficial comparison. Adam represented us in one way. Christ represents his people in another way. But the differences far outweigh the similarities. Christ is the giver of life. Adam was the giver of death. Adam came from the dust of the earth. Jesus, the God-man, came from heaven. Adam spurned God's law. Jesus Christ delighted in God's law. Adam overturned the created order by listening to the voice of his wife. Jesus Christ restored the created order by listening to the voice of God and now rules over all. So the comparison is real, but it's superficial. The comparison, we could say, is one of opposites. Paul is comparing Adam and Christ in a superficial way, but his emphasis is the comparison on how they are opposites. And the simple point Paul explains and clarifies are these opposite realities. In verses 15 through 21, Paul is outlining a comparison of opposites, and he provides four opposite realities. Four opposite realities comparing the one rebellious act of the first Adam to the one redemptive act of the second Adam. And these opposite realities reveal, therefore, the glory of Christ's saving work of redemption for his people. That as bad as Adam's sin was, as bad as Adam's decision was, as bad as Adam's work was, the work of Jesus Christ reverses all of that. And not only restores us to God, redeems us from our sin, gives to us eternal life, but God does that in a way that was even better than the way Adam experienced all of that prior to the fall. This is Paul's point. This is the heartbeat of Romans, and this is the heartbeat of your Bible. This is the most important passage in all of Scripture, in the Old Testament or the New Testament, because it gives to us a history of redemption. It gives to us inside, behind the curtain, behind the curtain of heaven, all the activity of God and what God has been up to and what God is doing by creating this world and sending His Son to die for sinners. It gets no better than this. This is central to understanding Paul's message in Romans. These are the best words the Apostle Paul ever wrote. And therefore, it's incumbent upon us to understand, at times, a very difficult passage of Scripture. My goal is to make this as simple as possible. At least that's my attempt. So let's look at these four opposite realities, comparing the one rebellious act of the first Adam to the one redemptive act of the last Adam. The first opposite reality between Adam and Christ comes down to a difference of power. A difference of power. Verse 15, notice your Bibles. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of God of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Paul's point summarized, to quote Calvin, is that Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam was to destroy. Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam was to destroy. Notice how Paul begins, but the free gift is not like the trespass. These are two things that are total opposites. The free gift is not like the trespass. The, the, trespass, or the free gift refers to the second Adam's supreme and powerful act of grace in going to the cross. That's easy to understand. God the Son is God the Father's free gift to the world, John 3.16. But it's also true that God the Son's free gift secured our justification. 
And that's why later in the verse it refers to the grace of the one man, Christ Jesus. There was grace demonstrated by the Father. There is grace demonstrated by the Son. He's the one that secured our justification. You remember Peter stood up at the Jerusalem Council and he declared in Acts chapter 15 that we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the grace of God the Father and there's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as a free gift to the world, Jesus was... It wasn't just his person that was a free gift, it's what he accomplished when he entered this world, which was our redemption. If you want a summary of that, Jesus Christ, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. God's gift to the world was Christ. And Christ's gift to the world was justification secured by his death upon the cross. That's the free gift. The point is this, Jesus' death resulted in life, but that wasn't so with Adam's death. Adam's death resulted in death to all of mankind. So Paul's highlighting that contrast. The free gift is not like the trespass. The free gift of Christ is not like the trespass of Adam. Unlike Christ, the heavenly Son of God, The earthly son of God, Adam, trespassed God's command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He deviated, he trespassed, he swerved from the righteous path God placed him on. But God the Son did not deviate. He, as the Bible says, fulfilled all righteousness, which became a free gift to those who have faith in Christ. We could put it this way. Adam trespassed the boundaries that God had placed around the tree with the forbidden fruit. And thinking it would bring life, that he would be more like God, it actually brought him death and took him further away from God. On the other hand, the second Adam's actions were not like the first. Remember, God told the first Adam not to go to the tree in the garden, but God told the second Adam to go to the tree at Calvary. And here is the point, amazingly and powerfully so, by the second Adam being obedient and going to the tree of Calvary, the result wasn't death as it was the case with Adam when he went to the tree in the garden. No, when Jesus went to the tree of Calvary, the result immediately was death, but ultimately it was life eternal. That is a contrast of power. The work of Adam led to death. The work of Christ leads to life. Adam's work at the tree in the garden led to death for all of us. Christ's work on the tree of Life in Calvary leads to life eternal. And Paul amplifies this contrast of power. Christ had a greater power, a greater work. Notice the rest of verse 15. For if many died through one man's trespass, notice this language and circle it, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. How much more? Paul's main point in this statement is simply that Christ The second Adam's work of salvation is far more powerful than the first Adam's work of worldwide damnation. That Christ's ability to save is much more, to borrow Paul's words, powerful than Adam's ability to damn. Notice the language. How much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many? How much more the grace of God overcomes sin? Because God determined to send another 
Son into the world to rescue us from sin. That is the grace of God. Calvin calls the grace of God the free goodness of God or gratuitous love of which he has given us a proof in Christ. There is no greater love than this than a man lay down his life for his friends. There is no greater love than the demonstration of Christ on the cross. The giving of the Son, that is the grace of God. And then the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, refers now to the grace of Christ. The grace of the Father was sending the Son to die. The grace of the Son is the free gift of that one man, Jesus Christ. It's the gift of righteousness. Because skip down to verse 17, it's referred to as the free gift of righteousness. This is what Paul's been discussing, the doctrine of justification. That we are declared righteous through our faith. We are given an alien righteousness freely and sovereignly by God. And that wouldn't be possible if Christ hadn't secured it on the cross. And so as bad as Adam's sin was, and as powerful as it was because it led to death for all, verse 12, death spread to all mankind, Paul's point in verse 15 is that God's grace is more powerful. God is more powerful. Christ is more powerful. Just as through one man sin entered the world, and death spread to all, so through one man, and I love the language, that one man, Jesus Christ, grace has abounded to many. Death is extremely powerful. But that one man, Jesus Christ, broke the power of sin and death. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, he abolished sin and death, and he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel and the free gift of grace. So the curse of sin for Adam violating the covenant of works, which is death, was powerful, and from a human standpoint, absolutely unreversible if it wasn't for the one man, Jesus Christ, who was more powerful. And that only one man could do it, and the fact that only one man did do it, proves the contrast between Adam and Christ. It's clear who was more powerful. As powerful as Adam's sin was, as powerful as the result was leading to death for all of mankind, Christ was more powerful. How much more powerful has His grace abounded to many? To put simply, the gift of life surpasses the curse of sin. So as bad as your sin is and my sin is, as bad of shape as this world is in because of Adam and because of us adding to Adam's trespasses, how much more great is the grace of God? It overcomes all of that. It reverses the curse and turns it into a blessing because of the second Adam. That is quite amazing. And what Paul says in verse 15, in this comparison of opposites, that there's a difference in power is really foundational, but he moves quickly now to the second opposite reality. The first opposite reality, comparing the one rebellious act of the first Adam to the one redemptive act of the second Adam, came down to a difference of power But there's another opposite reality, and that is, this comparison comes down to a difference of provision. Notice verse 16, and Paul continues, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Paul is really explaining the end of verse 15 and answering the question, how exactly does the grace of that one man abound to many? I mean, how can what one man did lead to such a blessing? The free gift is not like the result, he says, of that one man's sin. It's a comparison, almost identical wording to verse 15, but now he's focusing in on the result. 
The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. Again, one is an emphasis here. One sin by one man at one time resulted in a powerful change to God's creation, the entrance of sin and death into the human world. But as powerful as that was, that being the result of sin, notice what Paul says in the rest of verse 16. For the judgment following one trespass, yes, it brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. There's a comparison here between the one trespass of Adam, which resulted in judgment and condemnation, and the free gift which came after many trespasses. Not one sin, but many trespasses. The point is, Christ's provision was far greater because it overcame far more. The judgment is a reference to the judicial sentence by God for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. One trespass, that is the sin of Adam, brought God's judicial declaration of imputed guilt to all of mankind, otherwise known as condemnation. And we know that because of verse 12, that just as sin came into the world through one man, death spread through sin. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. That is the imputed guilt of Adam to our account. We know that. We talked about that last week. But to be fair, such was not Adam's intention. I mean, do you really think that Adam was seeking to plunge his posterity into misery and ruin? I don't think so. In fact, um, in 2 Corinthians 11.3, I read this last week, in 1 Timothy 2.12-14, it's clear that Eve was deceived by the serpent. In fact, um, if you turn back to Genesis chapter 3, We'll just go directly to the primary source instead of Paul quoting it in the New Testament. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die if you eat the fruit. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that she was deceived by the cunning of the serpent. Adam wasn't deceived, but really he was in the same position as Eve because he didn't take God's word at face value. Adam had known nothing but the grace and the goodness of God, and so he probably thought to himself, God surely can't be serious. What does it even mean to die? What is judgment? What is condemnation? God's only been good, he's only been kind, he's only been gracious. He probably won't follow through with whatever he promised in that covenant. That was a lack of faith in God's word. The result was judgment and condemnation. But notice the rest of verse 16. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but, here's the comparison, the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So God's judgment came as a result of the one sin of one man, whereas the free gift through the one man Jesus Christ was the result of many trespasses. Adam's sin resulted in a judicial sentence of condemnation, but the gift of Christ and his salvation and his righteousness, which followed many trespasses, results in justification. 
Here is what one commentator says, John Stott, about this verse. He says, and I quote, The secular mind would have expected many sins or many trespasses to attract more judgment than one sin. But Stott goes on to say, but grace operates a different arithmetic, a different math. Another commentator says that one single misdeed should be answered by judgment, talking about Adam's sin, is perfectly understandable, but that the accumulated sins and guilt of all the ages should be answered by God's free gift, this is the miracle of miracles utterly beyond human comprehension. Simply put, all that Adam provided by his one sin was condemnation, regardless of his intentions. But Christ did one thing, he went to the cross, and by doing that, he overcame not just Adam's one sin, but the many trespasses to secure our justification. He didn't just provide forgiveness for our many trespasses, because that would have simply put us back to zero. That would have put us in a neutral state. That would have returned us back, we could say, to the state of innocence that Adam was in. No, he didn't just provide a way for sins to be forgiven. He provided the free gift of justification, verse 16. That is the declarative act of God that the believer now has the permanent status of being righteous in God's eyes. This is a far greater provision. Jesus did not simply cover our sins. He applied to us the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that is why as a believer, when God looks at you, He sees Christ. He sees Christ's righteousness. You are no longer in spiritual debt. It's not like you went back to zero, your sins were covered, you're back to zero. And now it's works salvation again. No, you stand permanently in the state of justification. You stand permanently in righteousness. We are no longer in the red. Our debt of sin, our liabilities surpassing our ability to earn God's favor. No, that's not us. We're in the black. Because of Christ and His merits, we have more than enough righteousness to receive God's favor. This is why Paul says that what the second Adam did was more powerful and that His grace abounded for many. Look at what he overcame. He not only overcame Adam's one sin, he overcame the many trespasses. It would be natural if someone sins against you one time to forgive them. It's much harder to forgive when there are many trespasses accumulated. Christ's provision through grace, Paul is saying, is permanent. His work is finished. Adam, he only provided condemnation. Christ provides not just the forgiveness of sins, but he provides justification. A declaration that the sinner is righteous in God's eyes, a permanent status. And by the way, even if Adam hadn't fallen into temptation and the snare of the devil the first time, his work would have never been finished. Jesus said at the cross, it is finished because it's finished. But Adam's work would have never been finished. The fate of posterity would have always hung in the balance. He didn't provide, and the reality is, he could have never provided what Christ alone could. And that is why a second Adam was always necessary in God's sovereign scheme. To provide no chance it violating the probation. With the first Adam, condemnation was always a possibility. But with the second Adam, because Jesus secured justification, it renders condemnation an impossibility 
for all those Christ represents. That's why Paul says in Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's why Paul refers to Jesus not just as the second Adam in 1 Corinthians 15, but as the last Adam. His work is finished. He's the last Adam because what he did didn't just put us back to neutral. What he did was positively apply the righteousness of Christ to our account. And what is so amazing about that is that what Jesus had to overcome and all that Adam did in wrecking this world and all we did in adding to that is amazing. And so the comparison stops just at the fact that Adam represented us and Christ represents us. But when you really dig deeper, there really is no comparison. Christ and what he provided is a much greater, more glorious, more extensive provision. The destruction that Adam caused, as bad as condemnation is, is not as grand as the justification given to us because of Christ. So the comparison is superficial, but it's real. The comparison between the one rebellious act of the first Adam and the one redemptive act of the second Adam comes down to a difference of power. It comes down to a difference of provision. Number three, it comes down to a difference of purpose. And this third difference has to do with the purpose or intent already alluded to. But notice beginning in verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. We'll start right there for a minute. The word if there could literally be translated since or because. In other words, it's not really conditional. We already know that one man's trespass resulted in death reigning. So really you could read it, not if, this is what happened. So since or because of one man's trespass, death reigned. Now again, death reigning because of Adam's sin was the result But that wasn't the intended purpose of Adam and Eve. I pointed this out earlier. Their intentions were not to plunge humanity into misery and ruin. But remember God had promised in the covenant of works, Genesis 2, 15 through 17, that in the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely what? You will surely die. That death will reign. Life had reigned before. Now death will reign. And as I said, Eve's evaluation consisted of seeing that the tree was good for food that it was to be desired to make one what? Wise? And further, Genesis 3, she believed the lie of the serpent that when she ate of it, her eyes would be opened and she would be like God, knowing good and evil. So what they intended to do by eating the fruit, their purpose, their intention was to become more like God. They believed the lie of the serpent. In particular, the woman was deceived. But this rebellion did not produce That, it produced the opposite, regardless of their intention. Their sin resulted in separation, not deification. They wanted to be more like God. It's not what they got. In fact, they grew further away from God. Instead of becoming deified, more like God, they became defaced in the image of God in which they were created. And the punishment, which would have been life had Adam obeyed, was death. And not just death, but the reign of death. On the other hand, the second Adam's intended purpose was different. He fulfilled the Father's purpose. Notice verse 17, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Notice the language again. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So let me give this to you. Adam's purpose was to live to become like God. Christ's purpose was to die. 
by becoming like man. Adam's purpose was to enter a realm equal to God. Christ's purpose was to leave heaven, to enter the realm of sin and death and provide life. Adam failed and the result was death. Christ was successful and the result was life. Notice again the wording of this comparison closer. Verse 17 says, death reigned through that one man. That's Adam. That is parallel to reign and life through the one man, Jesus Christ. It's simple. Adam brought the rule of death. Christ brought the rule of life. And the phrase much more again highlights how much more abundant and successful was Christ. Christ knew his purpose sent by the Father and he fulfilled it. He achieved it. So that, as verse 17 says, those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, which we've been talking about, reign in life. Just a couple of things. We receive the abundance of grace. We don't achieve it. We don't earn it. We don't do anything to deserve it. It is the free gift of righteousness. And I should say, the phraseology free gift, Paul's used it more than once here, it really refers to a grace gift because every gift is free, otherwise it wouldn't be a gift. So Paul is emphasizing the graciousness of this free gift of righteousness. It's received. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. This judicial sentence where God declares us in the right, secured by the redemption of Jesus, flows from the abundance of grace. It's a grace gift. Paul has already emphasized this. You go back to chapter 3, if you remember verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested where? He says, apart from the law. That is, it doesn't come by way of obeying the law. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Paul says in Philippians 3.9, I want to know Christ, I want to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's received. And it's described here as the abundance of grace. What is this abundance of grace? It's the free gift of righteousness. But notice also it means that we reign in life, verse 17. Did you see that? We reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now catch this. Colossians 1.13, we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Without Christ, we are under the reign of death because we're in union with Adam. With Christ, we are under the reign of life because we are in union with Christ. The wages of sin is death. We are dead in our sins and trespasses apart from Christ. So the gift is reigning in life. Now, this can be illustrated in the fact that death is all around us, isn't it? Death is everywhere. You see your loved ones with a diagnosis. You see your loved ones with a sickness. You see your loved ones with a surgery. You think of your loved ones who have died and gone to be with the Lord, and you know that your day is coming. There is no way to avoid death. I remember several years ago when we started the church, uh, I called all the funeral homes in the area and I established a relationship with them because I knew the best place for me to get a free audience to preach the gospel would be at funerals. And so these funeral homes started calling me and one funeral home in particular, I developed a really close relationship with the owner who happened to be a Christian and he would call me almost weekly and I would go and do these funerals and I went to do this one funeral about uh, maybe four or five miles down the road. It, it was just a graveside service and it was this little cemetery tucked away in the midst of of some construction and building just right down the road. And I remember talking to the funeral director and he said, you know, 
The cemetery people are upset with all this construction in this building, but I guess there was some sort of legal code that said, I mean, how would you move a cemetery anyway? So they had to kind of mark things off and you couldn't build too close. That is sort of a a picture of the reality we are in. Man makes progress, man builds, man modernizes himself. We have all of these modern inventions and the progress of civilization, but death is unavoidable. Cemeteries mar the landscape of the world. But Paul says, what Christ has done, what Christ has done is that He has placed us into this realm where there is this reign in life. Notice that at the end of verse 17. We will reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The one man, Adam, brought death. The reign of death. The reign of terror. The one man, Jesus Christ, brings a reign in life. Notice he doesn't say life reigns. He's saying the recipients of the abundant grace of salvation will themselves reign. So listen carefully to me on this. In Adam, death is king. If you are in the realm of Adam, his rule is inescapable. The devil's authority is unavoidable. He is a tyrant over you. And apart from Christ, we are in Adam. We are slaves, we could say, to the regime of Satan. But what Christ secures for us doesn't just place us in another kingdom as slaves to this impersonal concept of life. Life itself doesn't reign. Christ reigns. He refers to himself as the resurrection and the life. So what Paul's saying in verse 17 is that through Christ, who is our life, we're not only delivered from the rule of death, we're delivered from its sway over us, and now we rule over death with Christ. We reign in life because we're in Christ. As one commentator says, we become kings, sharing the kingship of Christ with even death under our feet now and one day to be destroyed. I like that because Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, Not only that we're a chosen race, but that we are a royal priesthood. You know, the author of Hebrews speaks about Melchizedek. He was a kingly priest. To be part of a royal priesthood means that you have royalty, kingly, and priestly functions. We are king priests ruling with Christ even now. This isn't something merely in the future. We exist in the realm of life. We reign with Christ because we are united to Him. Paul says... In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You have victory in the life of Christ, and you are united to Christ, and therefore you're ruling with Christ now in a reign of life not death. And Paul is so obsessed with the idea of life that he goes in verse 18 to really summarize everything he said before, but now with an emphasis on associating justification with life. Notice verse 18, he says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. He loves the concept of life. Justification and life for all men. That simply means that justification results in life for all men. Now we need to stop here for just a brief moment because in verse 18, he says that justification and life is for all men. And there are many commentators. There are actually people you would be surprised to know believe in what is called universalism. They use verse 18 to argue that. 
that all will be saved in the end. All will be justified in the end. Verse 18 might appear to be teaching that, but you need to understand that the word all is an example of a literary comparison. Remember, he's emphasizing the far-reaching results of the first Adam and the second Adam. So, just as in Adam, death spread to all men, verse 12, so too in Christ has spread justification and life for all men. But this is literary parallelism. In other words, he's comparing things. Because at the time of Adam's sin, there only existed one type of humanity. Of course, it included all men, right? But after Adam's sin, God made it clear that a new humanity would come through the seed of the woman. This coming promised one, the one who was to come, verse 14, would spring a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. We're called a chosen race, a new humanity. So the all men of verse 18 who receive justification in life simply refer to all of the elect. When he says all men in verse 12 die, there was only one type of man, those in Adam. But after the fall, there's two types of men. And so you can say all of those die, but all of these live. And that's simply what Paul is saying. Secondly, Scripture is clear elsewhere, well, elsewhere that the word all cannot mean everyone will be saved because justification is received by grace alone through faith alone. If you go back just to verse 1 of chapter 5, therefore since we have been justified by what? Faith. John 1.12, as many who receive him become sons of God, as many who believe in his name. Or back in chapter 3, in verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or you could go to chapter 4 and verse 5. To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. So Paul is just summarizing this to give the parallel. All men died in Adam and all of the elect will live in the second Adam. And then the third thing that I would say is that the use of all in the Bible doesn't mean all men indiscriminately every time. There's a number of examples of this. Acts 2.17 is one, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That's the day of Pentecost. Spirit of God was not poured out on all flesh. It was poured out on all types of different people from around the world who had gathered on the day of Pentecost. So we only believe in the universal nature of the gospel in the sense that it reaches all types of people. Matthew 28, we go to the ends of the world. There are other examples where all does not mean all people without qualification. Now note verse 19, because like verse 18, it serves as a summary. Paul says, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. He's repeating his previous points, but he moves from all to many in the comparison. The trespass of Adam that he's referred to in this passage and the gift of Christ That's what he referred to it as in verse 15. The trespass of Adam, the gift of Christ. Now in verse 19, he refers to as one man's obedience and one man's disobedience. Because of Adam's disobedience, we were made sinners. That is kathostami. It refers to God's declarative act of justifying a believer. He made us sinners. Adam's guilt was imputed to us and we were made sinners. And by comparison, Christ's obedience, verse 19, results in us being Kathostami, made righteous. The many will be made righteous. God makes us guilty because of Adam. God makes us righteous because of Adam, the second Adam, Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, Look at yourself in Adam. Though you had done nothing, you were declared a sinner. 
Look at yourself in Christ and see that though you have done nothing, you are declared to be righteous. That's the nature of the comparison. And in Paul's lengthy comparison, he's ultimately dealing, as verse 19 says, with a matter of obedience and a matter of disobedience. This is why theologians refer to Christ's obedience as being both active and passive. It's active in the sense that Jesus obeyed all the commands of God. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. I've come not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Mom and Dad, shouldn't you be aware of the fact that I would be in my Father's house doing His work? This is the act of obedience to Christ. He never sinned in thought, word, or deed. Verse 19 is a nod to that. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Christ obeyed in thought, word, and deed in complete purity. And his passive obedience, that's really a bad word because there's nothing passive about it, but it was his death on the cross. You remember Jesus said, no one takes my life, I lay it down, I, I give it up. According to my own will, it wasn't really passive, but passive obedience is the term theologians use to describe the obedience of Jesus and death on the cross. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians chapter 2. So, if you think imputed guilt is unfair, then you need to read not only verse 19, but also skip back to chapter 3 and verse 26. Paul says it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He's talking about the imputed righteousness of Christ, and it says that he is just and the justifier. God not only justifies you or declares you righteous, but the Bible says God is just in doing that. Why? Because he didn't brush your sins under the rug. He punished your sins upon the head of Christ. God is just. Sins were paid for because an obedient substitute was in your place. So if it's true that God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, then it's also true that he is just in imputing to your account the sin of Adam. And that's exactly what he did. That's why Paul's making the comparison. There's a first Adam and a last Adam. And the difference between the two is one of purpose. That's what we're talking about in verses 17 through 19. Adam represented us, and regardless of his intended purpose, to attain a deified state, he fell and he plunged us into a reign of terror or death. But the last Adam, who represents God's chosen race, had a pure purpose in obeying the Father and he fulfilled it and saved humanity. He followed the will of the Father from eternity past to a T. To a T. Paul writes in another place, I know you're familiar with it, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. I mean, Jesus executed the purpose of God's will to a T in securing our redemption through His shed blood. So you want to talk about differences. We'll talk about differences. There was a difference in purpose. Adam thought he could find a way to be more like God and it took him further away from God. Made him more unlike God. It marred the image of God in which he was created. And Adam, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, knew exactly what he was doing and he executed it. 
So this comparison of the one rebellious act of the first Adam to the one redemptive act of the second Adam comes down to a difference of power and a difference in provision and a difference in purpose. But number four, it comes down to a difference of providence as well. And we see this in verses 20 and 21. The key to understanding this last comparison is found in recognizing that Paul is giving a brief of redemptive history. Notice verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, many of you know that I grew up a dispensationalist, and don't hold that against me. Um, But if you're not familiar with dispensationalism, that is a theology that essentially divides history up into seven periods in which people say that those seven periods were seven different ways God judged man. And although I'm a son of dispensationalism, I joined the family of covenant theology because I think covenant theology better represents the structure of the scriptures, which comes to us in the framework of covenants. This doesn't mean that all dispensationalists are bad people. To the contrary, some of my heroes are dispensationalists. But at the end of the day, I'm not beholden to those men. I'm beholden to the word of God. And um, I'll tell you this morning that if there was ever a passage that proved that the Apostle Paul was not a dispensationalist but a covenant theologian, it's Romans chapter 5. He doesn't talk about seven ages. He talks about two periods of times. It's, It's simple. There's two periods of time, one in Adam, one in Christ. There's a reign of death and there's a reign of life. There's the age of unrighteousness and the age of righteousness. And in particular, he does this in verses 20 and 21 by talking about God's law. Notice he says in verse 20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. So Adam thought he was in control. He thought he had some sort of providential power to create a better standing with God, to become more like God. Paul's saying not so. God alone is providential. In a way we don't understand, listen to this carefully. In a way we don't understand, God who ordains all things planned for the fall of Adam. That is exactly what these verses are teaching. And what did God do? Verse 20, the law came in to increase the trespass. And where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. God providentially codified the law. He had it written down and given to Moses in order to bring many sons to glory because the law helps man see his sin clearer so that he can more clearly see his need for justification through Christ's atoning work. Paul says the law came in to increase the trespass. What is the trespass? This refers to Adam's one sin. Verse 12. That it, the trespass, definite article, the trespass. The law came in to increase the trespass. How does the law increase the trespass? Well, the accumulated sins throughout history culminating and climaxing in the unjust death of the Holy Son of God. The law increased the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In other words, Paul is saying the law had a gracious providential purpose. And on the surface, it doesn't appear so, right? I mean, the law is given to Moses. It only exasperated sin. I mean, they're committing sin at the bottom of the mountain before the law even comes down in gross ways. And Paul even states, just flip with me to chapter 7. Notice with me in verse 8. 
Paul says, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, that is through the law, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. Paul says, you want my testimony, I'll give it to you. The law of God actually added to my sin, because when I knew that God said, you cannot covet, it made me want to covet more. That's the power of the law. Verse 11 For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. But on the other hand, Paul says, the law itself, verse 12, is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. You see where Paul's getting, there is providence to his plan of redemption. Similar to what he says in Galatians, he says this, Why then the law? In other words, why did God add the law? Paul says it was added because of transgression. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So the law was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come. That is Christ. Referred to in verse 14, the one who was and is to come. So Paul is saying in verse 20 that sin increased, but this was part of God's providential gracious purpose because when sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In other words, The more sin was amplified by the law, the more God's grace was magnified. And the result of that is that man was able to see, because of the law, his need for grace and forgiveness. So we could say that grace has superabounded to lead to eternal life in Jesus Christ, and it makes our salvation that much more sweeter. Paul says that God added a written law, so sin increased so that grace would abound. Verse 20, now notice verse 21, so that, and you need to circle that because here's the providential purpose, just as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Christ, God fulfills His providence, grace and righteousness leading to life, where sin reigned in death, because of the first Adam, God providentially overcame through the second Adam, and His grace would lead to a reign. It all comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. Our Lord reigns and we reign with Him. By grace alone, the superabundance of grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, the law was added as part of God's providential plan to bring many sons to glory. This is the grace of God. So Paul has demonstrated that there is a big comparison here between the one rebellious act of the first Adam and the one redemptive act of the second Adam. It's a difference of power. Christ is more powerful to save than Adam was to destroy. It's a difference in provision. Christ provides forgiveness and the positive state of having His righteousness applied to us. That means that Adam's state before the fall was probationary, but our state in the last Adam is permanent. There can never be another fall. The provision is great. It's a difference of power, a difference of provision. It's a difference of purpose. Adam's sin was meant in his own mind to produce deification, but really it produced separation, the reign of death. Christ intended to redeem mankind, and that resulted in the reign of life. It's a difference of power, a difference of provision, a difference of purpose. It's a difference of providence. God codified the law at Sinai to increase sin so that God's grace was magnified, so that God's grace would superabound so that it would be that much richer, that much sweeter, that much greater. That's good news. As bad as your sin is and my sin is, it doesn't compare to the greatness of God's grace. That's the gospel. And if you don't believe that, you'll turn into a Pharisee. If you don't believe that, you'll turn into a legalist. 
And you'll be watching the lives of other people and you'll nitpick them and you'll try to determine how they don't match up to your own standard. That is not the gospel. The gospel says, you are bad, I am bad, we are all bad, we all deserve death. Through Christ, we reign in life. Our sins have been forgiven, we have been declared righteous, and so we accept and we love one another just the way we are, because we are all the same way. We bear the righteousness of Christ. We bear the image of the second Adam. Now, the Puritans would often give practical uses of their passage, and I want to give you just a few that I've come up with. Practical use number one. This is simple. Every man must see himself not as inherently good, but inherently bad. Can we please tell the culture that? We are sons and daughters by nature of rebellious parents. We are part of an apostate race. Your faith or lack of faith is not a matter of just a personal thing. This is a universal thing. We're all in the same lot. We are all guilty. We're either in the family of Satan or we're in the family of God. And if we're in the family of God, we are to love those in the family of God equally. And we are to love unbelievers who still bear the image of God but are in rebellion. And that's why I can't emphasize enough our duty as Christians to want the apostate human race to be redeemed. And how can that happen apart from our gospel witness? How can that happen apart from relationships with unbelievers? How can that happen without rubbing shoulders with those in the world? We are dealing with universal issues. So Christianity is not about isolating yourself in some commune to become as holy as you can. It is to become dirty with the world, not in sin, but dirty with the world with their problems so that you can point them to a pure Savior. There's a second practical use. Not only must we recognize our identity outside of Christ were it not for His grace, but secondly, although Adam's guilt is imputed to us, and that is true, Adam's guilt has been imputed to the entire human race because of one sin. The Bible never allows us to blame Adam or God for our actual sins and transgressions. The reality is the provision has been made, and if you reject the provision of salvation, you reject life and you deserve death. That's what Scripture teaches. You say, well, that's not fair. Well, then neither is salvation because God imputes Christ's righteousness to you when you didn't do anything to earn that either. That's the nature of this comparison. You can't say the devil made me do it. That doesn't work in the court of God's law. The third practical use, and this is a tricky one, you may not agree with. Since we had Adam's guilt imputed to us apart from voluntary actual sins and yet still are subject to death, is it not possible that infants dying before demonstrating conscious actual sins and unable to demonstrate faith yet have the righteousness of Christ imputed to them? And I believe that is exactly what Scripture teaches. It's not far-fetched when you understand we receive the imputed guilt of Adam not because of voluntary actual sins. So why is it hard to believe that we can receive the imputed righteousness of Christ as an infant apart from voluntary actual sins? We have to remember God is a God of grace and a God of judgment. And He is perfectly and divinely balanced in the way He deals with mankind. There's a fifth practical use. This is simple too. We must learn to uphold the law of God in the home, in the church, in society. Why? Not to be legalists but because we love the gospel. The more the law is clear to a child, the more they see their sin, right? 
The more the law of God is clear to an unbeliever in the world, the more they see their dirtiness before God and their need for forgiveness. You're not loving anybody if you don't live according to the law of God and you don't set high standards of God's law in the home, in the church, in society. There's a sixth practical use of this passage. We should be hopefully optimistic, not miserably pessimistic. That really comes out in this because although we don't hold to universalism, I do not believe that all people in the end will be saved, but I do believe in a universal God who is going to universally save many. That's the language that is used here in Romans 5, many. God's grace comes to many so that over the long haul, comparatively speaking, in the universe over the long haul, more people will be saved than those who die because of the spread of Adam's sin. In fact, all you've, all you've got to do, th- this is just one example of this. This is really not far-fetched. I mean, what do you do with Revelation 7, 9? After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's interesting that Christ's kingdom and his rule is emphasized here. The Greek word basileus or basileu is actually the Greek word for to reign. And to reign is mentioned several times in this passage. And a basileus in the Greek is a king. Two times God's people are said to reign. Basaluo. Reign in life through Christ, who is our king. And then the word abound is parasuo. It's Superlative language, it means to exist in abundance, to surpass, to overflow. God's grace superabounds, it surpasses, it overflows, it overcomes what sin and the curse of sin has done. So that I believe that Christ's reigning kingdom of life surpasses and dwarfs Adam's kingdom of death. More people will be saved in the end than are in hell. Well, that doesn't sound very reformed. Okay, let me quote C.H. Hodge, the preeminent reformed theologian. He says this, The number of the saved shall doubtless greatly exceed the number of the lost. Further, we have no reason to believe that the lost shall bear to the saved no greater proportion than the inmates of a prison do to the mass of humanity. In other words, he's giving an illustration to say that comparatively speaking, there are more free people than prisoners. There will be more people in heaven than in hell. Why is that hard to believe if we have a providential God who just reversed this whole thing for the sake of his creation so that people from every tribe and tongue and nation will bow to Christ? And when you know he has an elect people and when you know over the long period that the majority of mankind, comparatively speaking, Maybe not at this hour, at this day, but comparatively speaking over long history, there's more in heaven. So many you can't number them. That will give you confidence to be a witness for Christ in the world because you recognize he reigns over all and he owns all. Then the seventh practical thing, and I'll close with this because I've gone too long, but the seventh practical thing is this, and it has to do with the historicity of Adam. You know, Paul's comparing Adam to Christ, right? You believe that Christ was a real man, right? So why is it hard to believe that Adam was a real man? Science, evolution, all that stuff does not mesh with the Genesis account 
when it comes from a secular viewpoint that starts with the presupposition that Adam didn't really exist. Or if you got some liberal scholar, Adam was a myth. Okay, let me give you a math equation. If Adam was a myth, then you might believe that Christ was also a myth because Christ is compared to Adam and Adam is a myth plus Christ as a myth will result in you believing eventually that the gospel is a farce. The gospel is not myth. Christ was a real man. Adam was a real man. They both really represent us. But Christ only represents us through faith. In this free gospel, where we are declared righteous, we are declared to be in the right, we are declared to be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that when the Father sees us, He sees His Son, He adopts us into His family, we are restored, we have life eternal. This is what Paul has been laboring to show all the way since chapter 3. This is why the doctrine of justification is so glorious. It's simple. You can either be in Adam and be in the reign of death, or you can be in Christ and reign in life through Him. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, He chose His people before the foundation of the world. But it is also true that the choice is yours. And if you reject this gospel, if you reject this salvation, you will be held liable before God on Judgment Day. So what we all must do is look to Christ, seek to be found in Him, to identify with our federal head and know that we are no longer under a probationary period of a covenant of works. We are in a permanent state of righteousness. The last Adam has come. Nothing can reverse what God has done through Christ. That's enough to encourage your hearts for the rest of the week. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.